we're going to turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 to 16 for our scripture this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, please follow along on the screen. Philippians 3, 10 through 16 says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. This is God, God's word. And please join me in prayer. Lord, we are so grateful for your word. We're grateful that you... Uh, give us the Holy Spirit to, um, to enlighten this word to us, to explain it to us, to help us understand it, God. I pray that you would use your Holy Spirit to speak through Pastor Kyle this morning, God. Uh, build him up as he speaks to us and also um, build us up as we listen, Lord. And I pray that you would help us to walk out different uh, today than when we came in. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's so good to see so many of you here this morning. Um, just so happy that we can celebrate the Lord's Day together. Um, uh, on this uh, Sunday, we woke up and we get to remember that Jesus Christ is risen. Um, he's paid for all of our sins. And um, he's offered to you freely by grace through faith uh, the expiation, the removal um, of all of your sin and decorates you in his righteousness. Amen. Um, and this is the privilege that we have as God's people, that we get to not boast in our works or on, in our morality, um, but boast in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. That's our message. That's the gospel. Um, and we're just so glad to be able to open up and continue in this wonderful look at this letter to the Philippians. I hope that you've been enjoying it so far, if you've been kind of carrying along with us. And if not, maybe you're kind of new. Um, the, the, the sermons that pre preceded these... Um, are online, so if you want to catch up, you can do that online. But um, right now we're in this text, Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 16. Ancient Christians uh, used to practice what they called a rule of life. Now, I don't know if any of you have heard this language before, but the ancient Christians, were it was very um, common to hear this expression. And these were basically rhythms or disciplines, practices that were spiritual in nature that ordered daily routines, that really um, throughout the day, these types of uh, spiritual devotions uh, would be committed to in the Christian life. Um, they weren't just for monks or priests, um, but for anyone who called themselves Christian because they wanted to center everything that they did, their work, their play, um, their family, their friends, um, around the gospel of Jesus Christ to remind them of their need for him. Uh, Peter Schizero wrote a, a really helpful little book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And he says that uh, an, a rule of life is a call to order our lives in such a way that the love of Christ comes before all else. 
The word rule comes from the Greek word that's at times used for a trellis. You guys know what a trellis is? Um, <clears throat> these basically enable grapevines to grow and to thrive. Um, many of you might have them set up at your homes. I have one. Um, and there aren't grapevines growing up at just weeds. <laughs> but grapevines, uh, trellises normally complement the nature of a grapevine. They lead the vine to a place that really demonstrates and maximizes its purpose. It puts on display and it makes available its beauty and its fruit. Isn't that what a, a, a trellis does for a grapevine? So a rule of life for the Christian is that which enables us to grow and to thrive in our Christianity. It's those principles and habits that lead the Christian to demonstrate and maximize our Christian purpose. It puts on display in the believer's life, and it makes available to people around us the beauty of Jesus, much like the trellis does for a grapevine. It makes it so that the world around the grapevine can enjoy its beauty and splendor and fruit. So there is a way in which, there is a rule in which for the Christian that maximizes this for us, for our purpose in our Christian life. The trellis actually is introduced here in verse 16. You might have missed it, but it says, Let us hold true to that which we have attained. And the words, the Greek words there for hold true are, are, that, are those same words for trellis. It's a rule or it's an order. See? So let us hold true. Let us be trellised by, guided by, that which we have. Let's be ruled by, have an order, directing us somewhere by, that, by the thing that which we have attained. Now Paul doesn't really say much about specific daily habits here or about these orders. He doesn't mention prayer. He doesn't really mention like things like meditation or silence or Sabbath, having a day off for worship, things like this. But he does talk about the heart of this rule and the need to follow it. Now, I know um, some people here might think this might be a little bit bizarre. You might not know Jesus. You might not be a person of faith. It might seem a little spooky or aggressive. Um, we hear the, rule, like, the word rule in our culture, and we just sort of give like this collective eye roll. Nobody likes rules. Teachers give rules, right? And who likes school? Some people like school, I think. I've heard of them. <laughs> but when we hear the word rule um, in our culture, we sort of give a, a collective eye roll. But everyone, consciously or unconsciously, has rules of life, don't they? You say, like, well, this is like, sounds a religious thing. This is why I'm not religious. You're saying I, ha I need to have rules and all this. But we all have a rule of life. Every single person in this room, consciously or unconsciously, has a rule of life. We have um, rhythms of rest and play and work, don't we? we? We have disciplines in our daily life that maximize our potential to reach our goals, whether they're vocational goals or relational goals or recreational goals. You see what I mean? We all have rules. We have bedtimes. We have times that we wake up, times that we eat, times that we devote ourselves to the things that are important to us. We have a rule of life. Everyone has these. So we have a rule. We have a way to get to our goals, a trellis of sorts, to bring us where we want to be. Okay, does that make sense? So why be a Christian, though? What is a Christian? What does growth look like for a Christian? What is the goal of the Christian? What is the goal of Christian progress? So this morning, I want to look first from this text at the rule's origin. 
Then I want to look at the rule's goal, and then I want to look at the rule's imperative, okay? The origin, the goal, and the imperative. Now, if you're a Christian, I'm hoping to spur you on <clears throat> to greater devotion to this order, to have ordered lives around this unifying principle, um, to have a rule of life that rules and governs all your other sub-rules, all the other rules underneath that rule, to actually see your other objectives of life as filtered through what is your primary objective as a Christian. Okay? And hopefully you'll see that more clearly as we proceed. If you're not a Christian, I hope that really Christianity is demonstrated to you so powerfully and so beautifully today that this morning you would accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you would understand the graciousness and the saving power of our God in heaven. Amen? And that's our prayer for each other and our objective as we continue on in this word. So let's look at the origin of this Christian rule of life. It's safe to assume that if there is a goal to being a Christian, that being a Christian must mean something, that a Christian actually is something, right? It's not anything. It's something in particular, that it had some sort of beginning, right? I wasn't a Christian, now I am. What was that? What's the difference between the before and the after? And can that help us to know where we're headed? You see what I mean? <clears throat> For a grapevine to climb a trellis, there needs to be a vine, right? A vine needs to be something that exists for a, grape, for a trellis to even be useful outside of maybe being decorative, right? So for a grapevine to climb a trellis, there needs to be a vine. What's more, the nature of that vine needs to be understood if a trellis is going to serve it. See what I mean? If a trellis is going to serve it well, then we have to understand what vines do and where they go and how they develop and grow. A trellis doesn't do anything for four-leaf clovers, <laughs> right? Or dandelions. So to understand what's going to complement Christian growth, we need to know what a Christian is, right? Isn't that just common sense? We read, we read again in our text in verse 12, not that I have already attained, obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal. So he's talking about the goal of this rule of the Christian life but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. So Paul is a person that was taken hold of by Christ. Past tense. A Christian has been taken hold of by Christ. If we can just start right there, we can say that very simply. That if you're a Christian, the difference between before you were Christian and after you were Christian is that the moment you had become a Christian, it was because Christ took hold of you. Okay? Go, going through, uh, so Paul is talking about, <clears throat> um, excuse me, in John chapter 3, we read, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they were born again. And what does this tell us? going through the direction and order of this trellis so that, we, so that he might take hold of the goal of the Christian life. It was for this that Christ took hold of him. So Paul is going through this trellis. Initially, why is he going through it? That, well, the reason is because th this is the reason why Christ took hold of him to begin with. You see that? And here is the origin of Christ being born in a person. What a Christian is by nature it happens when Christ takes hold of us. And this is the point of the new birth, like I just read. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born 
again. You see? There are other images in Scripture of this, this point in time as a Christian where Christ took hold of you. It calls it being born again. The blind being given sight. There's that imagery. You remember this imagery? The deaf being given ears to hear. The dead being raised to life. All of this in Scripture is imagery of what happens when a person becomes a Christian. And all these things, what it's, what's clear is that the Christian is created through the choice and power of another. They're taken hold of. And this is what scholars of old called free grace. It means that at the heart of what it means to be a Christian is that you have contributed absolutely nothing to save yourself. God did it all. And that's what makes it free, and that's what makes it grace. The new birth requires an act of God, a miraculous touch to a dead spirit, to dead ears, to dead eyes. The moment that you put faith in Jesus, if you're a Christian, that moment happened out of a supernatural move of the Holy Spirit because of his great love for you and his gracious awakening of your dead soul. And that's what scripture says. And that's what makes it free. That's what makes it grace. That's why you don't have to climb a mountain or eat magic berries or give a lot of money to this church to be saved. What makes you saved is the absolute free grace of God through Christ who saved you. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. What had Paul attained? What was the rule of life for which he, he was to attain, by which he was taken hold of, the free grace of God in Christ was his rule in life. The origin of his new birth was the sovereign grace of God. Salvation is based on a God who moves first on us. And that's what makes it unmerited, an unmerited favor of God. A God who took hold of us. Not a God we took hold of, but a God who took hold of us. And if you don't know Christ this morning, the call from Christ in salvation is simply to receive this kindness, to believe and trust that he did all the work for you in your place, that being in this church this morning isn't contributing to the forgiveness of your sins. Isn't that liberating? You want to know why it's liberating? Because at the end of the day, we know we just can't come to church enough. We, there's just not, not enough seniors to help across the street right we know we've fallen we know we've failed and we know in our gut that there's nothing that we can do about it as good as we can try as hard as we can try and as good as we can be god takes hold of us by an act of his will not motivated by your performance but by his love and his grace for you isn't that amazing wow in the text we looked at last week we read how some were claiming that they needed to earn favor with God by a religious exercise, by circumcision. In other words, they were saying, if you want God to cast favor on you, if you want your sins to be forgiven, if you want to be saved from God's wrath, you need to be circumcised. You see, a fleshly act, a religious service, a duty that was responsible for the expiation or the forgiveness of their own sin. That's what we look, and Paul rebukes them in this letter, and by the way, he does it in another place in Galatians. Um, we read this in uh, the book of Galatians. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. 
And, you know, we could fill that, fill that in with anything. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to give um, lots of money to the church, to be baptized, to soul win. Right? You've got you to do these things if you're going to impress God and if he's going to forgive you. If it says not even those who, circum- who are circumcised keep the law. You see the problem with that? You say you can do some active obedience to some religious thing, but you've broken the law still. Not even those who are circumcised, yet they want you to be circumcised, that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ, he says, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new birth, the new creation. God took hold of me. He gave me eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. He gave me the will to turn from my sin. What counts is the work of Christ, the grace of God in Christ. The work is done, friends. Peace and mercy, he says in Galatians, to all who follow this rule. There it is, this trellis. The Christian life is founded and continues in the marvelous grace and love of of God through Christ. That's the rule. What's stated here is the heart of what it means to be born again and what it means to live as a Christian who grows and a Christian who have peace and mercy reigning on them. The works of the flesh cannot erase past sin. They do not increase God's applause of you. Your applause is established and completed in the work of Jesus Christ for you. Oh, freedom in that. That means that if I blow it today in this sermon, God's like, well, you know, I was going to stand up and clap for you, but you really blew it. You should have studied for another hour. Right? God's applause for me is established and completed in the work of Jesus Christ. That liberates me in my study. That liberates me in my prayers. That liberates me in my soul winning, on my Sabbath day, in my baptism, you see? It liberates me because I know that Christ that God through Christ has already satisfied me the work of Jesus, through the work of Jesus. And that's what the free grace of God means. What counts is the new creation, the free grace of Christ, the supernatural and gracious move of God in saving us from our sin and giving us eyes to see the need that we had to be rescued to begin with. Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to this mind-blowing text. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And friend, if you don't know Jesus today, I know this is not popular in our culture. If you don't know Jesus today, your sin makes you deserving of the wrath of God. But because of his great love for us, there's a button there, great. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our sins. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms with Jesus. All of the glory of Christ is endowed to us. All of the possessions, all of the inheritance, the same love that God loves Christ with is equal to the love he loves us with. And we're sinners, undeserving of any of it. 
God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. You see, our good works do not create us. Our created nature gives us good works. You see the difference? The beginning and foundation of new life in Christ is one of undeserved favor, love, and mercy, and that is our rule. That is our rule in prayer. That is our rule in church attendance. That is our rule in baptism, that we are glorifying God in it and not earning our salvation or his favor. So what is the goal of all this? Why has God given us these new eyes to see? What are we seeing that we didn't see before? And Paul says it very simply. Oh, and please hear the simplicity and power of these words. I want to know Christ, he says. I want to know Christ. You see, friends, the reason... Why God, in his unmerited favor, passed over your sin and put it on Christ is because God wants to know you. Isn't that incredible? I want to know Christ. The reason we're taking hold of, to know Christ. You see, all of heaven won't be a putting around a golf course. It won't be fishing in a sea. It will be knowing Christ knowing him more fully, more completely, perfectly, without sin. Very powerful, very, word, very loaded words. I want to know Christ. And friends, what I would hope that if you're a Christian in this, mor- this morning, if you've been distracted by that, the simplicity of the goal of the Christian life, that this morning you would wake up to it, be reminded of its power to know Christ. Very powerful words. And I, want, I don't want you to miss the significance of these words. I want to rehearse a little bit what Scripture means by the word know. What does it mean to know Christ? Well, first, it has to be an intellectual knowledge, right? To know about a thing. I know about cars. I know that um, the, the earth revolves around the sun. I know that if I drop something, it falls because of gravity. I know 2 plus 2 is 4. There is a reason. There is an intellect, right? We know about things. We know our cousins. We know the president is Donald Trump. We have information, right? There's an intellectual side to this knowledge of Christ when you become a Christian. You know who he is. You know that he's the Lord, God in the flesh, Savior of humanity. But it's not just an intellectual knowledge. It's also an emotional knowledge. Repeatedly, the Bible describes sexual union in in the Old Testament as knowing the other. Adam knew Eve. So it's more than just, I know about Eve. It's, I know Eve. You see what I mean? And if you're married here today, that's the kind of intimate knowledge you should have with your spouse. To know each other in a way that's relational. To know each other in a way that's intimate. I want to know Christ. It's more than just to know about Christ. It's to know his great love for you. It's to exchange that love in intimate union. And finally, this knowledge has to be volitional, doesn't it? 
to know someone or something in this sort of intimate fashion requires an act of the will, doesn't it? It requires that we take a step. It requires that we desire to know Christ. See? And Joe actually touched on this last week a, a bit. And these are the components of saving faith even. Saving faith is intellectual, emotional, and volitional. Do you, do you know that the scriptures say of the demons in the, bo- in the book of James that they believe in God? They faith in God, yet they tremble in hell. What's going on there? I thought the just shall live by faith alone. And why is this? Because while they have an intellectual knowledge of God, an intellectual acquiescence of who he is, they don't deny him, but they don't know him fully. They don't know him intimately. They don't know him affectionately. They don't want God, you see? They don't desire to be cleansed by him, to be united with him in reconciliation. You see, faith does that, and knowing Christ does that. Paul says, above all else, I want to know Christ like this. To know the power of his resurrection. To know the participation of his sufferings. We kind of trip over that one, right? We kind of like the resurrection one. But, you know, like, ooh, isn't it great to... But don't you realize that resurrection comes through suffering? It just implies a death happened, right? I want to know him. I want to know not just the good things about him, I don't, I don't want to just know his healing power. I want to know everything about my Christ, even his sufferings. I want to become like him in his death and so somehow attain to the resurrection. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus, and that prize is to know him fully. We know him in part now. We will know him fully then. Full knowledge and union with Christ. We experience it progressively in the Christian life now, but then fully when we see him. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that, why did he take hold of us? In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. He raised us up, us up. This is what this is saying. He raised you up so that he could lavish on you the full knowledge of Christ and the infinite love of God in heaven. You see, we can line up in a row all the reasons why we don't deserve that. All the things that we've done all the ways we've offended our Lord. And Christ says, it is gone. It is finished. And when you see me face to face, you'll know me fully. And forever and ever, you will sing the grace of Christ. Isn't that incredible? God created every single human being to know him in this way. That he would be one with him. That's why God created man. That God would be our greatest satisfaction. Our greatest need fulfilled. And to be lost, to be blind, is to not see this. To be fulfilled in everything but him. Romans chapter 1 says that we worship the created thing over the creator. But in Christ, by God's grace through faith, you can be rescued. 
reunited, reconciled with God through Christ. In the ages to come, see constantly what are the incomparable riches of knowing Christ. Oh, friends, bring your neighbors to hear the gospel. Bring them to hear the good news. Bring yourself so that you could be trellised by the grace of God in Christ. Life is too hard. We have too many enemies. We need the grace of God in Christ to trellis us through, don't we? What is it or who is it that you might wish to know like this, this morning? Who has distracted you from this good God in Christ? We might want to taste success, to know success, to know the love of another or safety or money, the exhilaration of power. We say, I want to know that. I want to know power. I want to know success. I want to know riches. But Paul says, I want to know none of this. As a matter of fact, not only do I want to know none of this, I consider this as worthless, as garbage in view of the surpassing view of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's better to know Christ. So what is it or who is it do you want to know this morning? Can I introduce you to the one you've been looking for your whole life and the way to him is free? You don't have to be cute to turn his head. You don't have to have money to get her attention. You don't have to have a long resume to get his position. Because by God's grace, you are delightful. You are the righteousness of Christ. And all the applause that is Christ is yours. So no love, no purpose, no safety, no identity, no applause, no power in a way that nothing else can provide. It's all there in him, and it's for free. Come and get it. You don't need to dance. You don't need to beg. You don't need to earn it on the way to know him and to be known by him by grace. That's the trellis. That's our guide. That's our growth power as Christians. And when you forget it, you'll start shrinking down the trellis. When you shrink back into a works self-effort or you think you need something besides your lovely Lord, you're going to start forgetting the grace of God in Christ, that it is lovely and powerful. Galatians 4 says that before you knew God, you were slaves to false gods. Slaves. And how many people know that this morning? You're just a slave to it. It's not good. It's not helpful. Even when you win the prize, two days later it's not enough. You're a slave to it. But now you know him. Rather, you are known by him. You don't just know God intimately. He knows you intimately. The goal then of this gift is a reunion, an intimate knowledge of our creator given to us for free, given to us by faith, and undeservedly in Christ's death and resurrection done for you. Now that's freedom. Now we know in part, but then we shall know fully. Know what? Jesus, Christ, our Lord. The goal for the trellis of Christian growth is to know him more now by grace, boasting only in him, and then to know him more fully 
when he comes by that very same grace. To know him. Friends, do you know him? Do you know, know him? Do you like, like him? (laughs) Right? Do you know him? Are you ordered daily by this need to know him? This singular goal, does that passion drive you? To know him in prayer, to know him in his word, to know him in your play, to know him in your work. Your work is an arbitrary friend. It's not the end in itself. You worship God through it. To know him in your rest. You see, this transforms all of life and all the components of life. So what is the imperative here? How do we proceed forward through this trellis, knowing Christ upward and onward till that day when we know him fully? In describing this real-life process, Paul uses some words, and let's look at them. I press on. I take hold of. I forget what is behind. I strain towards what is ahead. We read, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now I see several disciplines here in these simple verses. Ordering our lives in knowing Christ are, I think, some disciplines that we can unfold here. The first is an urgent pursuit. We can't get around that. I don't see some kind of passive acquisition of Christ-likeness and knowing Christ here. He's pressing on. He's moving. He's taking hold of. He's reminding himself. We're going to see that in a moment. Paul is refocusing himself constantly so that he might not forget. So even in the Christian life, we can be prone to put back on the flesh, to put back on works, right? Rather than taking it off and not boasting in any of it. We are to press on, rather, to take hold of grace, to take hold of his affirmation and approval, the gospel. And there are obstacles in this process, aren't there? There are trials, there are temptations, there are distractions. It's a war, friends. It's a war. Paul says, I need to press on, I need to put on, I need to wrestle, I need to strain forward. And friends, it's that kind of pursuit of Christ that is the prize for us. And it's the daily distractions of life that make us forget how worthwhile it is. But second, I see a habitual and intentional forgetting. We have to be, if we're going to be trellised on in the order of grace, we need to be good at forgetting. It's hard to forget, isn't it? It's it's hard to forget what is behind. People have hurt us. We've had disappointments. Things have happened to us in our lives that sting still. Mistakes we've made, regrets, sins. The gospel, friends, frees us from all of this. And if you believe the gospel, you will be free from it too. Forget it, Paul says. 
forget what stands in the way of what is ahead, and that is knowing Christ. Do you know that no mistake in your past can get it in the way of knowing Christ? Did you know that the girl that dumped you those years ago that you loved cannot get in the way of the love he offers you? Did you know that the job you lost and the maybe humiliation that you feel from a failure does not make you a failure to God in Christ? Because in him, you are the victor. You are the winner. You are not chosen last for the baseball team. Amen? The gospel frees us from these things completely. The gospel says that in Christ no sin can keep you from knowing him. So forgive yourself. Forgive yourself because it, it is forgiven. The gospel says that nothing is worth knowing more than Jesus. So forget that lost job, that lost girl, that lost dream. Press on to him. Let him be the dream. The gospel says that in Christ you've won. You're not the sum total of your mistakes or failures or disappointments. So press on. Forget it. And press on to what's ahead. You only progress through the trellis when you can forget. So go after Jesus and be a good forgetter. The third thing, though, is remembering. Don't just forget, remember. Galatians 4.9 Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God's But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Weak and miserable forces, they are. How is it that we've forgotten how weak and how miserable they are? How insane are we to turn back to them away from Christ? Friends, we need to remember that all our pursuits for satisfaction in the created thing are weak and miserable. We need to remember that. We need to be good rememberers. There are broken, this is what the Bible says about it, there are broken cisterns that can't hold water. You try to fill it up, and it just leaks out. It doesn't work. And we need to remember that. We need God through Christ to restore us to sanity. You know that's one of the steps in AA. We admitted we were powerless over our addictions, that our lives had become unmanageable. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Well, let me introduce you to that power. He has a name, and his name is Christ. And friends, it is insane to think that the created thing won't lead us to more misery. To rely on God's created things over him, the creator, for that which only he can provide. So we need to remember that salvation is by grace through faith, not to revert to self-effort. We need to remember that Jesus' applause is better, that knowing Christ is better, that knowing his love and power are famous. That's the trellis. That's that's what gives your prayer power. It's what keeps you from being a Pharisee. I go to church and I pray, oh, great, the Pharisees did that. What keeps you from being a Pharisee is that you don't do those things to credit God's favor. You do those things to worship the one who gave you that favor for free. You see? Friends, that's the trellis. That's the power. That's the growth. That's the end. To know Christ as a gift by his grace through faith. Amen? So let's be good forgetters. 
good rememberers, and let's strive towards the goal of knowing Christ. Press on. Amen? Let's pray. God, I thank you, Lord, for this wonderful morning that we get to remember what Jesus has done for us. God, help us to live up to, be ordered by, ruled by, trellised by what we have obtained by grace through faith, the forgiveness of sin, and relationship with Christ. Oh, to know Christ. That we would know Christ, God, by grace through faith. That we would be ordered daily by this increasing knowledge of his favor and love so that he might dwell in our hearts richly through faith. That God, we as a church, being rooted and grounded in love, may have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Oh God, let that be our rule of life. Let us be ordered by that thought to know Christ. And friends, if you don't know Christ, what's better than that? I hope that the gospel was presented to you in such a way that it's so beautiful and so powerful that you can't do anything this morning but turn from your sin and trust in the one who loves you without measure. Oh, and friend, if that's you, take the first step and come tell me after church, tell one of our elders, so that I can delight with you and pray with you what God's doing in your heart. God, I thank you, Lord, for this wonderful morning where we get to consider these things. God, let us as a church press on to the knowledge of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.